Hi, everyone. Good morning. All right, if you have your Bibles, turn, turn to Acts chapter 21. Acts chapter 21. Acts chapter 21. This morning, our focus will be on Acts 21, 37. Um, the rest of Acts 21, and then we're going to do the first um, 30 verses of Acts 22. So we've got quite a chunky, lengthy, whatever word, is there another one? Just trying to emphasize um, the lengthy reading that we've got, but I've come to realize that Sometimes we can look at God's word and we're like, gosh, this is long. Uh, but man, like, this is God's word and we get to read it together. Um, and the more we expose ourselves to it, um, the better, um, the, the more it benefits us. And so let's read from Acts chapter 21, verse 37 onwards. As Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the tribune, may I say something to you? And he said, do you know Greek? Are you not the Egyptian then who recently stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness? Paul replied, I'm a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no obscure city. I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. And when he had given him permission, Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his hand to the people. And when there was a great hush, he addressed them in the Hebrew language, saying, chapter 22, verse 1. Brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. And he said, I am a Jew born in Tarsus in Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, as all of you are this day. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women, as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. From them, I received letters to the brothers, and I journeyed towards Damascus to take those also who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. As I was on my way and drew near to Damascus about noon, a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me and I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me Saul Saul why are you persecuting me and I answered who are you Lord and he said to me I am Jesus of Nazareth whom you are persecuting now those who were with me saw the light but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me and I said what shall I do Lord and the Lord said to me, rise and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. 
And since I could not see because of the brightness of that light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me and came into Damascus. Verse 12. How are you guys doing? You good? Yeah? Is this entertaining? Just keep going. Verse 12. And one Ananias, a devout man, according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, came to me and standing by me said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour I received my sight and saw. And he said to me, The God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one and to hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. And now, why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. When I had returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance and saw him saying to me, Make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly, because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. And he said to me, Go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Verse 22. Up to this word, they listened to him. Then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. And as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, the tribune ordered him to be brought into the barracks, saying that he should be examined by flogging to find out why they were shouting against him like this. But when they had stretched him out for the whips, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, Is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? When the centurion heard this, he went to the tribune and said to him, What are you about to do? For this man is a Roman citizen. So the tribune came and said to him, Tell me, are you a Roman citizen? And he said, Yes. The tribune answered, I bought this citizenship for a large sum. Paul said, but I am a citizen by birth. So those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately, and the tribune also was afraid, for he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and that he had bound him. Verse 30, but on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews, he unbound him and commanded the chief priests and all the council to meet. And he brought Paul down and set him before them. What a riveting story. Let's pray. God, you are good. You simply are. And so as we do our best to see and to seek to understand all that you want us to understand in this passage, through this story. But I pray that you would be gracious this morning. 
I pray that I would simply be your vessel. Lord, I am perfect in so many ways. I just am. But thank you for your grace in Jesus Christ. Thank you for your faithfulness to me outside of my righteousness. It's not my righteousness. It's the righteousness of Christ. And so, God, I pray that you would speak to your people through me this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Um, since the Apostle Paul, um, Paul's arrival in Jerusalem, he's been the talk of the town for all the wrong reasons. A group of Jews uh, just have got together and they're just sick and tired of his message about salvation only being available through faith in Jesus Christ. They are just sick and tired of hearing it. They view Paul and his message as a threat to the Jewish way of life, and as a result, they want him dead. And so one day, what they do is they find Paul, they capture him, and start beating him. Their moments from ending his life when an officer of the Roman army in Jerusalem intervenes, thereby saving Paul's life. The officer, what he does is he arrests Paul and escorts him to the barracks for further investigation. If you don't know what a barrack is, <laughs> it's a building that housed soldiers. Um, it's still used today, I'm sure, in some parts of the world. Um, but that's what a barrack is. And so um, the officer arrests Paul, escorts him to the barracks for further investigation. Look at verse 21. Um, look at chapter 21, verse 37. See what happens. As Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the tribune, may I say something to you? The officer um, then says to Paul, look at verse 8, Are you not the Egyptian then who recently stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness? What's going on here? Apparently, um, there was this Egyptian who um, was a f just a fanatic and he stirred up this revolt right, of assassins, 4,000 men right, of the assassins. And so this officer is assuming that Paul is that rebel leader. And so with a puzzled look on his face, Paul says to him, to the officer, um, no, I'm not Egyptian, and I've never started a revolt. But, look at verse 39, I am a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no obscure city. So basically, I'm not that Egyptian guy, okay? You are mistaken, but I'm a Jew, and I'm from Tarsus, and Tarsus is an important city. And so, after revealing his ethnicity and birthplace to the officer, what Paul does next is kind of outrageous, okay? Um, this is why. He makes an audacious request. Look at the end of verse 39. Paul says to the officer, I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. This is why this is outrageous. In other words, this is what Paul's saying. Allow me to speak to the violent and hostile mob who have been trying to kill me. The officer must have looked at Paul as if he's like crazy. 
Like, are you serious? For real? Despite his shock at the request Paul has just made, the officer's open to the idea, and surprisingly, he agrees to it. He actually gives Paul permission to speak to the crowd. As Paul stands before a predominantly Jewish crowd, a crowd that consists of a Jewish mob who believe he's a threat to their culture and thereby want him dead, this is what's interesting. Paul's more concerned with telling them about God's grace in Christ rather than proving to them that he's innocent. Paul's been given a rare opportunity to defend himself. But he uses it to make much of Jesus. How does he do this? How does he make much of Jesus in this situation? And so this morning from Paul's speech, this is what we want to do. We want to discover several truths to help us okay, know what it looks like, know how we can make much of Jesus in our lives. The first way we can make much of Jesus, if you're taking notes, is by valuing Jesus above everything. Valuing Jesus above everything. And so, Paul's been given a rare opportunity to speak to the crowd. Um, It's likely, it's likely, and I'm sure this is true, it's likely at this point he's in a lot of physical pain because of the terrible beating he endured not too long ago. Regardless of how he's feeling and what he's going through, he cultivates enough strength to stand to his feet. He motions with his hand to quieten the crowd and when there is silence he begins to deliver one of his most famous speeches. The Apostle Paul has made some incredible speeches. Okay, He just has. But this one has to be in the context and the situation he's in. This one has to be one of his most famous and impactful Look at the first verse of chapter 22. This is how he begins. He says, Brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. Um, In this introductory statement, what Paul is doing um, is that he's referring to the crowd as brothers and um, fathers. It's a term of endearment intended to communicate his love and affection for them, his fellow Jews. He then invites them to carefully listen to his defense. Carefully listen to his defense. And so, whatever Paul's about to say next is what he believes will convince the crowd of his innocence. It's what he believes will help them see that he's not a blasphemer and an enemy of the Mosaic law, But he's a Jew who appreciates the law of Moses in the same way they do. And so, how's he going to defend himself? What's he going to say that will make them change their mind about him? Look at verse 3. He says, I am a Jew 
born in Tarsus in Cilicia. So he's bringing up his ethnicity and birthplace again. Um, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God as all of you to this day. So Paul begins his defense by letting them know about his ethnicity, his upbringing and his education. He's of Jewish descent. He was born in Tarsus. But, listen to this, he was educated in Jerusalem under Gamaliel. Paul wasn't just educated in Jerusalem. And back then, if he was educated in Jerusalem, it's like being educated in Oxford or Cambridge or Harvard or one of those Ivy League. It was a big deal. It wasn't just being educated in Jerusalem. He was also trained by one of the most respected and accomplished Jewish professors of his day, Gamaliel. I think I've pronounced it right. Gamaliel. <laughs> Love his name. It just sounds so smart. What does all of this mean? Why does Paul begin his defense in this way? This is why it's obvious. He wants to prove to the crowd that he was as Jewish as they come. In response to the rumors that have been circulating about him being a blasphemer and an enemy of the law of Moses, he spoke about his ethnicity and his education to help his accusers see that he was Jewish through and through. Paul also tells the crowd that his strict, rigorous, and elite education made him zealous for God, just as they are. The term zealous for God here, all right, has more of an extreme uh, meaning than how we would interpret it. When we think of someone being zealous for God, we picture someone who's just super passionate about God, okay? Just that guy or that girl who, 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 who is just very outspoken about God. They're just very pious. They probably live in a monastery or something, you know? They're just super passionate about God. That's how we like to picture someone who's, um, who's zealous for God. But the kind of zeal being talked about here in this verse is more of an extreme kind. When Paul says he was zealous for God, listen to this, it actually means that he was so committed to what he believed, okay, he was not only willing to dedicate his entire life to it, but he was willing to use violence to defend it. In other words, Paul was so devoted to the Jewish way of life, to Judaism, he was willing to use violence to defend it against anything that threatened it. And back then, okay, in those days, Christianity was the movement that many Jews saw as a threat to their religion. They viewed it as a dangerous and religious sect. 
And you've got to think about this. All throughout, if you look at the Old Testament, um, God was very much um, continually saying to um, the Jews, okay, that there is only one God. Okay, God was sending prophets to speak against any false gods and everything. And so you can imagine when any new movement came up and said someone else was actually God, like Christianity comes along and said Jesus of Nazareth wasn't just a carpenter. He wasn't just this guy from Nazareth. He was actually God in human flesh. It makes sense that the majority of the Jews were like, no, no, no he's not. This is blasphemy. And so in verse 4 and 5, Paul, this is what he does. He confesses to the crowd how his radical zeal for the Jewish faith led him to persecute Christians. Look at verse 4. He says, I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women. Paul was passionate. Paul was, sorry, responsible for a devastating season of persecution against the church it was and you can read about that in Acts 8 okay and other parts of um, uh, Acts 8 and other parts of Acts like this when he describes it but it was so devastating it was so horrific thousands of Christians had to flee Jerusalem for safety some fled to Damascus which was a city that was north of Jerusalem. And so Paul heard about it, got letters from the Jewish leaders um, that gave him authority to arrest Christians in Damascus and bring them back to Jerusalem for sentencing. But on his way to Damascus, something strange and unexpected happens. He has an encounter with the risen Jesus that radically changes his life. Look at verse 6 to see how he describes this incident to the crowd. As I was on my way and drew near to Damascus about noon, a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me, Paul tells the crowd. Verse 7, and I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Verse 8, and I answered, who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. And I said, what, what shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, rise and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. You can imagine, okay, as Paul is retelling his encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus, the crowd must have been so quiet you could hear a pin drop. It's a mind-blowing story, okay? Of Jesus, the risen Jesus Christ of Nazareth, supernaturally appearing to Paul. Some of you guys might think this happened in the past. It happened in history. But if you're aware of Christian history and Christianity in the modern times, Jesus is still 
appearing to people in this way. Um, if you read, uh, 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 you know, if you do read articles or books about um, Christianity, especially in third world countries, um, there have been so many historical, legit accounts of Jesus appearing to people um, in dreams um, and in visions. And so as we look at this experience, let's not just think it's historical and it's stuck there. It's actually happening now. Jesus continues to reveal himself, who he is to people in the most supernatural way. And if you're here this morning and you're exploring Christianity and Jesus is compelling to you, know that he might not appear to you in a vision, but he is speaking to you and revealing himself to you through his spirit, through the gathering of his people, and through the spirit that is speaking directly to your heart. Following this experience, Paul's life was radically changed. He was changed from someone who hated Jesus and his followers to someone who loved Jesus and dedicated his entire life to following him. Incredible transformation, right? He hated Jesus. Now he loves Jesus. The Apostle Paul was given a rare opportunity to defend himself. To save his life by proving to his Jewish brothers and sisters that he was a legit Jew. That he was committed to the Jewish way of life as much as they were. But as he stands before the crowd that consists of a Jewish mob who've accused him of blasphemy and are calling for his execution, what's so fascinating about this incident, about everything that's going on, is that Paul's more concerned with making much of Jesus than he is to proving to them that he's innocent. He's been given a rare opportunity to defend himself. It's crazy that the officer actually agreed to him speaking to the crowd and gave him permission. But he uses this opportunity not just to prove his innocence, but ultimately to make much of Jesus by telling them the story of how Jesus saved him. How he was changed from someone who hated Jesus and his followers to someone who loved Jesus and dedicated his entire life to following him. And in doing this, this is what Paul was essentially trying to communicate. Jesus is more valuable than anyone or anything in this world. In a letter, 
Paul wrote to a church in Philippi several years after this incident, this is what he says. You can find it in Philippians 3, um, verse 4 to 9. This is what Paul says. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness, under the law, blameless. Basically, Paul's doing what he's just did. He's saying, like, look at my credentials. I was as Jewish as they come. Okay? I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. Verse 7, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Basically, Paul is saying, everything I am, and everything I have achieved is rubbish. It's nothing. It's garbage. It's trash. Compared to knowing Jesus. What do you value? the most what would you say is the most valuable thing to you let me also ask what would you say is the most valuable thing about you when you meet someone for the first time, okay, what's the one thing about you you cannot wait for them to find out about you? When I meet someone for the first time, I intensify my British accent. Got to tell you a story, it helps in so many ways. Once I was driving down a back road and I was going too fast and suddenly a cop appears and I'm like, gosh, it's like the worst day. And he stops me as he's coming. I'm saying to myself, I've just got to just intensify my British accent. And so he comes and he's like, you were speeding. I'm so, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry. So sorry, <laughs> just like <laughs> I didn't mean it. And you know, I'm just going on about how I'm sorry, and I'm ha wanting for him to just realize that I'm a foreigner, okay, and I'm a Brit. I, I just didn't understand these um, speed laws, and so I do that. When you meet someone for the first time, what's the one thing you cannot wait for them to find out about you? Maybe it's the team you follow, um, your team, 
baseball, basketball, American football, just doing really well. They may have watched, won a championship. And you just cannot wait for them to reveal <laughs> that you are a fan of this team. Or it could be the city you're from. Or what you do for work, or how many kids you've got, or the fact that you're good looking, or the most valuable thing to you about yourself is that people would like you, or that people would respect you. What do you value the most? What would you say is the most valuable thing about you? This is the reality. And this is the reality we all want to live in. Whatever it is, whatever is most valuable to you, it's garbage and it's rubbish compared to being a Christian, compared to knowing Jesus. May you count whatever you value as rubbish compared to knowing and loving Jesus Christ. May you seek to value Jesus above everything in this world. By God's grace, may you live in such a way that everyone around you will be convinced that you value Jesus more than anyone or anything in this world. We all struggle with this. And I know as I talk about this, in some of you or in most of you, there is a burning desire to know and love Jesus in a way that communicates to everyone around you that he's your treasure. You want it. But you also understand that you fail miserably. In this, and so the question is, how can you cultivate? How can you cultivate a relationship with Jesus, or how can you step into the reality um, that allows you to see that Jesus is way more valuable than anyone, anything? I would say, just pray, just dedicate a good amount of time this week to seeking God and crying out to him and saying God I so desire to treasure Christ above anyone or any I dare you to do that and God will answer your prayer he will because you're asking what's according to his will. Man, God wants to so 
cause you to be in awe of him. And so, may you grow to value Jesus more than anyone or anything in this world. So far from Paul's speech, um, we've seen how making much of Jesus means valuing Jesus above everything. Right? We've just seen that. Yeah, we did, didn't we? Yeah, you guys with me? It's good, good, I'm glad. It's encouraging. Second, we're going to see that making much of Jesus can at times intensify opposition. After arriving in Damascus, Paul meets a man named Ananias. Sky is awesome. He's well-respected. He's a devout man. And Ananias reveals to Paul exactly what God wants him to do with his life. Look at verse 14 and 15. And he said to Paul, The God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one, and to hear a voice from his mouth. Verse 15. For you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. And after this meeting with Ananias in Damascus, Paul returns to Jerusalem, a changed man. He's absolutely changed. He's radically changed, y'all. Like, he, he was someone who hated Jesus and persecuted followers of Jesus. And now he's someone who loves Jesus and wants to talk about Jesus and how awesome Jesus He's in awe of Jesus. This is amazing. He's valuing Jesus. One day... While he's in Jerusalem, he's praying in one of the temples. And as he's praying, he suddenly falls into a trance and has another supernatural encounter with Jesus. Verse 17 and 18 is how Paul describes this incident, this encounter, a second encounter with Jesus to the crowd. Look at verse 17 and 18. When I had returned to Jerusalem and I was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance and saw him, him, that is Jesus, the risen Jesus, saying to me, make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly because they will not accept your testimony about me. In this vision, Jesus himself appears to Paul and commands him to leave Jerusalem because the Jews will not accept his testimony. But the interesting thing is, Paul doesn't agree with Jesus. He doesn't. Instead, he pushes back and says, Jesus, uh, I kind of get what you're saying and everything, but with all due respect, I think it's best that I stay in Jerusalem. Why is that? In verses 19 and 20, Paul explains the reasoning behind his objection. He's basically like, look, my testimony alone will be enough to um, convince the Jews that I have changed and that Jesus has changed me. And then Jesus will be glorified through my testimony. But despite Paul's reasons for why he thinks he should stay in Jerusalem, Jesus still wants him to leave. And then in verse 21, Jesus reveals another reason he wants Paul to leave Jerusalem. All right, look at this carefully. And he said to me, go for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. He's not only to leave Jerusalem to protect his life, but he's to leave Jerusalem because Jesus is calling him to take the gospel to Gentiles, non-Jews. 
Think about this. If you know anything about the history back then, Jews didn't want to associate or want anything to do with non-Jews. If you're a non-Jew, Jews don't really want you to, um, they don't want to get close to you, they don't want you in a temple. Instead, they want to proselyte you, right? And convert you to Judaism before they actually even want to associate with you. And so, Jesus is telling Paul, who's a Jew, but he's changed to go and take the gospel to non-Jews. You guys with me in this story? Paul is standing before a crowd, predominantly Jews. Okay? And there's a mob who are in there that have just tried to kill him. He shared his testimony. It's incredible. They are, um, up to this point, the crowd have been listening quietly and carefully. They haven't booed him or heckled him in any way. They're listening carefully. They've been impressed, of course, with his education under Gamaliel. Okay? They, they've been amazed by his encounter with Jesus and his radical conversion. But as they've been listening to Paul, they've been wondering where exactly he's going with this. How is he going to conclude? Is he going to claim that there's been a misunderstanding? How is he actually going to defend himself with what he said? Before Paul concludes, before he says another word, look at what happens in verse 22. Up to this word, they listened to him. Then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. You guys get it, right? Let me just explain what's going on. As soon as Paul mentioned the word Gentiles and his instructions from Jesus to take salvation to Gentiles, the crowd becomes enraged. They had heard it with their own ears. From his own mouth, he was, after all, the man they thought he was. And so they raise their voices and start to shout, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. Crowd is enraged. They are outraged by the fact that Paul has just told them the risen Jesus has called them to take salvation to the Gentiles. Why is this? Why, why, why are they so enraged by this? Um, Charles Swindle, who's a popular Bible teacher, helps us here. He says, they didn't object to his evangelizing the Gentiles. Jews had attracted proselytes for centuries. Paul's method, however, offended them on two counts. On two counts. First, he refused to bring Gentiles into the kingdom of God through the door of Judaism, implying that Gentiles and Jews stood on equal plane before God. Second, his notice that he had turned to the Gentiles sent the message that God had set the Jews aside. Paul's speech is effective 
in making much of Jesus by communicating the events surrounding his conversion and what God has called him to. He's just telling the truth here. But it does not have the desired impact. Rather than hundreds uh, turning their hearts to Christ, they are enraged and want him executed. Likewise, as we think about how this applies to us today, making much of Jesus in our lives can sometimes intensify opposition. All hell could break loose the more passionate we become about loving and following Jesus. I just want to tell you the truth. The more you value Jesus, the more you make much of Jesus, the more you treasure Christ, the more the opposition could intensify. As we seek to make much of Jesus, let's not be surprised by this. Let's not be surprised that our lives could become really difficult. My family and I, along with a few incredible, incredibly faithful people, started this church just over three years ago. Our goal was to simply make much of Jesus, to make it all about Jesus, to um, know Jesus and make him known. That is what we've wanted to do. That's what we still want to do as a church. But a few weeks after we launched the church, all hell broke loose. Opposition intensified. I can't go into the details, but... We went through a lot as a church. And it's only by God's grace that we are still here and we are still strong. As modern day followers of Jesus living in San Diego will probably not face the same level of persecution Paul faced. But the truth is, as you seek to make much of Jesus, you will encounter trials and opposition. Opposition will possibly intensify. Yes, God's going to do some amazing things. He will. He will blow our minds. He definitely will. But let's not be surprised when opposition intensified. The good news of the gospel not only makes people glad, but it can also make people extremely mad. And for some of you, the fear of opposition may be the reason you've kept your relationship with Jesus simple and casual and hidden kind of safe. But let me encourage you to not allow the fear of opposition to weaken your passion for the fame of Jesus in this city. Let's not allow the possibility of trials to stop us from sharing the gospel, but let's trust that even under severe suffering, even if family disown us, 
even if we lose our jobs, even if friends unfollow us, even if we're hurt, disappointed, and suffer because of Jesus. Let's have faith to believe that he will help us endure. He will, in ways that we cannot understand, give us the strength to endure opposition no matter how bad it gets. Why? Why can we trust Jesus to help us endure to suffer? Why? Because Jesus, also known as the suffering servant, has been down the road of suffering and he has promised to be with us by his spirit when we suffer because of him. With Jesus, we can face troubles with courage and faith, knowing that God will even use these moments in our life for our good and ultimately for his glory. And so, questions for you this morning to really think about is, What do you value the most? Take some of the things that you value and realize this, that the reality is all of those things are rubbish and are garbage compared to knowing and loving Jesus. Also know this, that as we seek and endeavor to make much of Jesus, opposition will intensify. I don't know what it looks like for you. We know we're probably not going to be um, 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 heckled and attacked by a mob. You never know. That could happen because of Jesus. But because of your commitment to Jesus... Opposition will intensify, but we have faith and hope to believe that he will give us the necessary strength to endure. And in the end, in the end, we trust that we will see and know him in ways that just blow our minds. Let's pray. God, thank you. <sighs> thank you. Help us to treasure you, Jesus. Help us to grow in our love for you. Help us to not fear future trials and suffering knowing that you are with us every step of the way in Jesus name Amen